You are now investigating the invisible. We. And AI. Hello and a very warm welcome to Investigating the Invisible. In this series, you'll be joining myself and my co-host Peju as we examine the hidden ways AI is changing the world we live in. This episode is a particularly good one because we are exploring the impact AI is having on our jobs and the world around us. And this just so happens to be Kevin's area of expertise. So Kevin, no pressure. No, no, none at all. So does this mean that my job as co-host is at risk if I get it all wrong? Um, well, actually, fear of job loss is, is a really good place to start in this episode, I think, because that's one of the main concerns people have when it comes to AI. Um, so I'm just going to read out uh, three recent headlines on the subject, um, and they'll be linked in the, in the show notes. Um, so Bank of England, economist warns thousands of UK jobs at risk from robots and AI. The second one is job loss from AI. Uh, there's more to fear. And lastly, AI and unemployment, which cities face biggest impact? These are some pretty scary messages, and that's why it's so important to question them, which is what we're doing today. Exactly. Uh, we're going to explore beyond the fear and the headlines and try to understand what AI really means for the future of work. And that doesn't just mean employment itself. It also means how we'll do our work uh, how we'll be hired, what kind of work we'll be doing, because AI will impact all of this too. So let's get started asking some questions about AI and jobs. First, we'll be speaking to Deepak Paramanand, product lead at Hitachi Europe, former senior product manager at Microsoft. An all-round we and AI legend. We hope you enjoy this interview with Peju and Deepak. So, so AI is definitely making uh, an impact in all of our lives. And parts of it we love because it helps with the quality of our lives and the things we can do. And other aspects actually worry us from facial recognition to, you know, banks determining if we can get a loan or not. But most importantly, around our jobs, right? Because as you bring in the systems that, you know, and uh, enable you know efficiencies automation then the question is you know what impact is it going to have on us as a workforce so let's talk about you know how ai can impact our job or how it is going to impact our job what is your thoughts on that so I like to quote a uh, quote from a famous gentleman, Stephen Wolfram, and he very, very succinctly said that the, the more describable your job is, the more automatable your job is. And what that he means is, if you know that your job requires these 10 steps in this particular order, and there is not much variation to it, that's ripe for automation, and that's ripe for a machine to take that away from you. Whereas if your job involves a, a 10 steps, but the steps themselves are not defined, you get to work in a whole new environment every single day, it's less describable. 
And you may not even do 10 things. You may do 20 things a day, five things another day, and it's less and less describable, the less and less automatable it is. And this has been there even before AI. Uh, for example, accounting software came into play to make accounting easier. So I wouldn't say AI is the bane for everything. Automation has been around, but the thing AI has done is it has been, uh, it is now able to read the data, make the connections between the data, and make that automation accelerated. So for example, if you, if, if, uh, if the audience knows the ERP software, you needed to open up 10 to 20 screens, click 10 buttons, enter data into 20 other boxes, and then move on. Now, because you're able to understand relationships with data, you have five screens, five boxes to type in, and three boxes to check, and one box to submit. So even that automation has been achieved now because AI can form these relationships we couldn't you know, form before. So I would say the more describable your job is, the more you know, uh, worthy it is of automation, the more creative it is, the more unique it is to what you're doing, and the more multi-skilled you are, less describable it is and less automatable it is. I know there's been a famous saying that be a master of one, jack of not a jack of all trades. Sorry, uh, this world of AI, you have to be the jack of all trades. And if we are the master of one, that master of one is easily going to be replaced by AI. So this is a paradigm shift for that now happening. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, humans in, in the way we work, we need to move away from the mundane box checking type activities, outsource that to a tool, an automated system, an AI system that can do it more efficiently at a larger scale. And then we upscale and do the higher level thinking in our roles. So ultimately we evolve in the way we work. So can you uh, paint us a picture of what a day in the life of a future uh, worker uh, who has all these AI systems alongside them uh, is going to look like. So let's take an example of a doctor. So you're a radiologist today, you look at scans of people and then say, you have cancer or not. I want to imagine that a new way to say, you take a scan, that it, it comes to you and the AI can tell the doctor that the person has cancer or not. And the doctor can now, with equipped with AI, move away from diagnosis of the problem to assurance of health. For example, he might say, no, you don't have cancer, but the AI has told me other things about you that you compare to a much larger database of individuals. We can tell you that if you do these things, you can be assured of your health. So you can now pay me not to fall sick every year. Because today you pay me to cover the case where you fall sick, but tomorrow you'll begin to pay me, say, say 100 pounds a month, not to fall sick. So I will monitor your data. I will give you input so that you don't have to fall sick. You don't have to lose your productivity. You don't have to go to mental health and stress and issues so that you can become creative. And again, give yourself time to upskill and be more creative. I can definitely see the health industry moving from you know, causation to health assurance. And that's one, one picture I have in my head of how AI can help doctors. So, so the messaging is actually AI is not going to take all the jobs but actually make us work better and differently. Yes, yes, because who who doesn't want a, a mechanical engineer who's good at poetry and painting and singing and dancing? Problem is, we've never thought about that. Who doesn't want an oil driller to be singing sonnets? Why can't an opera singer also be an accountant? 
because we've never experienced that. We've never thought about those things. Now it's freeing up to do all those things. For example, why can't I have a stand-up comedy slot one hour every day at work? Just like me, somebody wants a knitting slot, somebody wants to paint, somebody wants to tell stories or poetry. That way we can enhance our own creativity and be more random, be more undeterministic, whereas an AI is predictable and not random. So let's explore, let's free ourselves up to be us, the unpredictable, creative, random beings we are, and not box ourselves to be the box checking you know, uh, persons that we are made out to be. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that, um, you know, theory to me sounds very exciting. Uh, but, you know, we need to take it with, with caution, right? Because I don't think that can be applied to all industries. You know, within health, we've seen systems that have been, for instance, trained to read, you know, images, you know, uh, radiographic images and, and they haven't been shown to be as good as consultants who've had years and years of experience in picking up certain diseases or changes in a, in a patient profile. So whilst the idea is, you know, something I think is an aspiration for us as a, you know, as humanity, um, I, I don't think we're there yet. Uh, what do you think about that? We're not there yet. For example, I'll give you another example I'm facing. So I've signed up for, the, for being an NHS volunteer. So each time I get a message on my app to say somebody needs help, nine times out of 10, it's an elderly person who's lonely. And that's very, very sad for me because I thought family and friends would help him. So I'm now thinking, if the creative jobs are still there, why can't we upskill everybody else to go and help these elderly people be a little more engaged? So why can't we upskill the, the, you know, the doctors and nurses are doing a great job, but they can't do this all the time everywhere. They have lives too. So why can't me, the software engineers, you, the HR person, you, the clinician, anybody else who's not doing care, why can't they not be upskilled to go and fill this gap? Because the more automation comes in, more digitization comes in, and more loneliness comes in. Because you're interacting with a digital medium, and we're not hardwired to interact with that very well. So we need these human skills. We need other humans to upskill in different levels. It's not going to happen overnight. But knowing that automation is going to come in, it's going to take away the mundane jobs. How can we prepare ourselves to be upskilled in creative ways so that we can fill the gaps of tomorrow is one idea that I've been personally exploring. Yes, and, and I think it's certainly interesting and something that is going to be changing and improving over time. Um, so one um, big problem with AI and one that everybody's talking about is, is bias, right? So in our conversation so far, we've talked about, you know, the potential benefit of, you know, AI automation evolving into this ability to predict and make us achieve more and, and at a better, you know, uh, level. But, you know, bias is a big thing, right? So how can our AI in itself help with diversity? Right. I've actually had personal experience with this. Uh, so in my work at Microsoft, I built, like I said, a computer vision product that recognized human faces and recognize an expression. So you can now imagine the mandate to me was recognize all humans in the world and for every single human with every single facial accessory that they have, make sure that they can recognize their smile, their laugh, their wink uh, in 100% in accuracy. I don't have unlimited budgets. 
I don't have unlimited software capacity, so how can I go solve for it? So you then say, well, I'll only capture 10,000 faces, and whichever people they represent, I'll only work for them. For example, we won't work for Asians. Well, you can say, I won't ship the product in Asia, but how can you make sure an Asian in America or somewhere else won't use the product? You can't live in that world because we're so democratic and so widespread. So how do we now then tackle the problem of inclusivity, diversity, while building a product like that and not have bias? So I had to go figure out a solution to do this. So, so one idea that we explored was to say, we will then create a pool of data that's as representative possible. Then we'll do synthetic data to figure out these combinations on the fly. For example, take my face, right? Can I put a beard on me? Can I have my face put nose, nose piercings, ear piercing, long hair, bushy eyebrows, lipstick on, mascara, blue hair, red hair, whatever that is. And can we test against that to make sure our product is working? Now, it'd be ridiculous if a human showed up like that in real life. I hope to God this person doesn't exist, not to offend them. But I'd be nobody would have so many facial accessories going on at the same time. But because we're trying to make the product inclusive, we have to think about these scenarios and bring it up. So which to me made it clear that the teams building AI need to be diverse, need to be inclusive. Because if you want to build the products for the world, then the world must be represented in building it. So had I, for example, had more women working in my team, I would have known so many things about women's faces. I, as a man, would have never known. So it took me so much time and energy to figure it out. And if Microsoft wasn't there, if it was a smaller startup, they would have cut corners and not been that detailed. But being a big company, you have these resources. Do others have these resources? So I would say AI is definitely showing you a mirror to your own biases, to your own humanness. It's up to us to act on it and take preventable measures to make sure we've done our best to cover all the broad use cases and to say that we have done our best and we have results to show for it. Definitely. And I agree with you that the AI products that we are seeing come off the production line uh, are definitely holding up the mirror to our society because they're just reflecting back, you know, what we are. And, you know, the age of blaming the machine is gone because we understand how the systems are, are built. So, so how do you then think that the future of work is going to look like with AI uh, now a permanent feature in, in our lives, in the world we live in? So as I said, I'll, I'll give you the answer in three aspects. The first aspect is job automation. We've talked about this before. So I would say the jobs that are describable will be taken away, will be automated. And of the jobs that are semi-describable or less describable, the describable pieces will be automated. So you'll free up to do the creative things. So the upskilling definitely there is to be more creative and to be jack of all trades, compared to being a master of one. The second aspect I'll bring about is jobs to us have been a sense part of our identity. For example, I describe myself as I am a product manager, when really product management is the job I do. So I am, you know, a man. I am a product manager, I am a father, I am a nation, I am a male. So many things we attach to ourselves identity. So if now jobs are taken away, what becomes my new identity? Should I find a replacement for that? And having anticipated that the jobs will go away, how do we make sure we attach our identity to a new paradigm or what does that philosophically mean? Because 
we there's so much importance given to you know what we do and it's going to be taken away now how do we think about those things and last important aspect for me is this idea of universal basic income i'm a big proponent of that for example if jobs are taken away from blue collar workers can we assure them a minimum money so that they can survive and thrive and go about their jobs in the same way as they were doing before for example you know the amazon warehouses famously have robots that can place the you know goods in the boxes and send them away there are still human elements required but if all that is automated what becomes of those jobs so can we have a minimum level of subsistence subsistence given to every human so that they can survive and thrive and then as as we discussed explore their creativity explore newer ways of working and finding it back because if we don't compensate them then they go into cycle of poverty which we don't want to have so it's good to automate it's good to have upskilling but you need to figure out a model to sustain the people who are whose jobs have been taken away and sustain them while they upskill so anybody who's thinking automation must also think about universal basic income and facilitate conversations to help those people back Thank you Deepak and you've raised a number of important points that I think we all need to be uh considering. No I said you know I build AI and it's my job to bring about uh you know these ideas to the forefront. Mahatma Gandhi once famously said be the change you want to see in the world. I'm I'm trying to do that myself. I'm teaching my son to code. He's 7, he's going to teach uh, learn to code. I I volunteer to teach to code elsewhere to tell them that it's no longer a want it's a need at the same time can you be a jazz singing left arm swing bowler who can become a doctor that's what i want him to be because that's creative and that's um, that's maximizing the output of who he is or just saying you're a boring doctor you're not you're far more creative than that you're the best human you can be Okay, so a uh, great interview. Where what did you think about that page? Yeah, Peju? I thought uh the interview with Deepak uh went very well and he really got me thinking about my creative side, okay? Because I wouldn't say I am very creative, but he's got me thinking about it. You know, if I had more time to do less, you know, mundane tasks that AI can take off my plate, what would I, you know, spend my time doing? Yeah so and trying to be more individual now it's you know what yes. makes us unique is it just just what we do or yeah you know I suppose even if you combine it now the time that we have from automation and AI picking up all these kind of these tasks that nobody wants to do and not having to commute you've got an extra bit of time for yes. hobbies in the morning and maybe maybe later in the day so you know what else are we going to learn now what's going to make us unique and and, and difficult to replace um yeah and having like what what did he talk about a jazz singing left arm swinging son um or an opera singer um that's an accountant you know so i wanted to transfer the skills so what do you bring from being an opera singer into accountancy that makes you more valuable than somebody who's just you know uh, a bean counter <laughs> a straightforward bean counter maybe being jack of all trades uh and master of none is maybe not such a bad thing anymore maybe that's what we should be working yeah. towards i wonder what 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 skills that that you bring into work uh that that you have that aren't necessarily professional skills because i'm sure we all have them we all have different interests you know and 
might be listeners that are into music and that might help them in work somehow. Um, but but what about what about you, uh, Paige? So I know uh, I, I know you're an, you're an amazing baker and 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 of course you're a mother as well. You know I I am not a father, so I I don't have those those skills yet from from being a parent. But um, you know what 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 can I learn from from being a parent and and baking and how could you bring that into work? Well, uh, you know, being a parent, you know, you have to be adept at, you know, multitasking at a ridiculous level, you know, listening, understanding, cooking, washing, you know, you name it, being the support. So I think, you know, I do bring that into my professional life. Uh, I and sometimes I, I probably juggle too much uh with work so that's so that's quite interesting in terms of the baking skills i i think really is about delivering cakes to my colleagues basically <laughs> <laughs> that is what is important about my baking skills yeah so don't tell us you can bake or how good your baking is bring the cakes in <laughs> yeah yeah or, or having all the right ingredients to you know end with a, a good outcome yeah when you start yeah. with the right ingredients you'll I, end with I something. don't think people care about that they just want to eat no, the cake but care. saying that Kevin I do know one or even two of your special skills okay and one of them I love right so I know okay that you have a pilot license very interesting but I also know that you used to be a Michael Jackson impersonator what <laughs> oh god almighty uh yeah well you know it wasn't a it wasn't a full-time job but it was a sideline yeah um kind of did it as a as a child and, and then kind of got noticed when i was a bit older and offered a few gigs so yeah that, that that's something i've done um have i used it in work oh I, 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 okay, maybe on a few nights out with work colleagues, perhaps. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how transferable that was, but but aviation skills, absolutely. There's loads of of transferable aviation skills. Um, how how could I use them now? Um, well, you know, on a day to day basis, there's a lot of best practices that that you you I, I will I will use, and that's you know how people work together, how two people work together in a cockpit is very important. You know how you pair up and team up and communicate with people. So, so with Deepak's conversation is really, you know, again, as I say, the reassurance that you know AI is not going to take our place or re replace us anytime soon. And instead of thinking about AI as this negative, looming disaster that is going to happen to us, you know, start looking at it in a more positive light you know there is there is a lot of work for us to do and as we cover in our series of podcasts you know looking at bias and things like that you know there's a lot of work for us to do but AI could be um, that thing that frees us up to explore the creative side of what makes us who we are yeah to be more human now it's time to hear from our next guest Jeff Wellstead has had an incredible 25-year career as a HR leader, helping organizations across investment banking, consulting, and technology to prepare for the rapid growth. Yeah, it was an excellent interview. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, we're going to talk about the, the future of, of work and the way roles are evolving. So um, here it is. What's your experience of AI in general in, in, in the workplace? 
<laughs> minimal. <laughs> um, yeah, the, yeah the, the term artificial is definitely there. Intelligence, not so much. Um, and, and arguably, I guess what we're still seeing is, is a, lot of, um, a lot of companies claiming AI presence and capability. But in truth, what they have is machine learning. Um, so if you have sort of raw data at the base of the pyramid, then you have two-dimensional data where systems of record are capturing that data and categorizing it um, as sort of the second layer. Then the third layer up is then um, doing something with it. So taking a look at, across the different data silos and starting to kind of match, you know, kind of patterns that are emerging and starting to make sense of it. That's sort of the third layer up. And then sort of rudimentary artificial intelligence is sort of the top layer um, and then there are sort of variations of and gradations of maturity uh, in terms of what that artificial intelligence looks like. Most of the systems that I am aware of and work with really kind of operate on the machine learning side of the equation. They're really pattern matching. Um, they are looking at particular repeatable, predictable systems like recruitment, uh, as an example, and uh, very quickly kind of watching how people behave um, around websites and applying for jobs, and then the interactions back and forth between the company and the individual, um, and then tracking how that person is progressing through interviews, so on and so forth. Um, and basically kind of making sense across not just that candidate's experience in terms of coming on board, but also what multiple different candidates' experiences have been. And then trying to kind of make sense as to how well or how effective is your recruitment process and what is it yielding in terms of the result that you ultimately hoped for. Okay, um, That's really kind of, again, that's, that's basic machine learning kind of stuff. Um, there are other companies like Phenom People, um, as an example, that are more into recruitment marketing, uh, which is how do you go out there to the world and start to chase passive candidates that don't even know that you're looking for a job and start to tease them into you know, who you are as a company, what you stand for, what your culture is like, um, what kind of work and, and uh, interactions are, you know, do you typically have, what kind of an impact, therefore, can you have, and very, very... Um, securitously um, kind of drawing you in without anybody doing any work whatsoever. The, the system just gets smarter and smarter about you the more you interact with it. And it starts to put together patterns across multiple different candidates, candidate pools and industry types and so forth and starts to predict, if we start to behave this way toward you, you will behave this way toward us. And we will start to create this psychological tractor beam to pull you closer and closer to applying for a job. And then once you do that, we got you. You know, now, we're, now you're in the system and we can actually chase you up. And I didn't have to do a heck of a lot of work as, as the recruiter to, to make that happen. Um, so I'm starting to see some inklings that those things are happening. Have you got any examples, uh, kind of use case examples in HR um, where AI got it wrong? Yeah, um, yeah, there are a couple of examples. I mean, the, the very famous example um, we now know is, is the one where Amazon experimented with, um, uh, with teaching an algorithm um, how to basically go and seek in the market what, what they thought good looked like. Um, and, and basically where they got that what good looks like, um, you know, kind of algorithm information or data sets is by looking internally um, across their, what they thought were their more successful employees. Um, and they basically pulled down a variety of different characteristics, skill sets, knowledge, and experience, ultimately kind of wrapping those up into sort of core competency categories, and then basically taught the algorithm to go find people who do this and assess people and test people against these attributes. 
um, and then come back to us and, uh, and include those people in the recruitment process, but reject others uh, who don't meet this criteria. And in so doing, basically what they discovered is the fact that basically they, they were basically hunting, uh, well, I guess it was a law of unintended consequences that kicked off. And what they ended up you know, finding is, yes, they did find a bunch of people who, who met that criteria, but they also found a very homogeneous um, you know, kind of recruitment uh, set, um, folks who were kind of anywhere between 25 and 35 white males educated in a particular way by particular schools. Um, and basically who had very, very specific, you know, kind of uh, attributes that were very narrowing um, in terms of um, uh, things like diversity and creativity, um, different thought processes and so forth. So they basically just kind of recreated what they already had, uh, which doesn't get them to better. It only basically keeps them at the same, um, same level. Um, and they very quickly had to kind of stop that experiment and say, clearly we've, we've taught the algorithm incorrectly and we didn't think about the broader context around that. Um, so that's one example. And look, there are a number of recruitment uh, tools um, that do exactly that sort of thing. Pymetrics, as an example, um, has a series of very fanciful uh, and interesting psychological, numeric, and logic tests um, that will basically um, you know, go and assess candidates um, and in ways that are not obvious in terms of what it is they're looking for. But that entire setup that Pymetrics uses is, is predicated on, you know, we had our best people basically com compete um, or, or complete rather the, uh, the algorithmic re requirements and the gamification that exists within Pymetrics. And we're using that as a model to go out to market and now find people who kind of fit those very same patterns. So look, we're, we're always have to, we're gonna have to be careful, um, yeah. you know, about what we teach our machines to go do, uh, because, you know, they'll just go out and do exactly what we teach them to do. I like the Amazon uh, example because, you know, that was that was six years ago uh, and we, we learned a lot from that. Uh, you know, like they pulled a plug on it pretty quickly. They realized that the data that they used were, was biased. They in, introduced bias into the system um, so they're always going to get a biased outcome, um, you know, and, and a lot of recruitment tools that I see now, you know, they, they don't use gender, they don't use the school that you went to and, and things like that. You know, it's, it's a level of education, it's the skills that you've got, it's, you know, the cultural, you know, things like, things that matter. Um, um, so I, I think it was, it's, it's a good example to show people still talk about this now, like it happened last year. Uh, oh, what about Amazon? You know, they they only hire white white people at the age of forty. Um, no, no, no. We learned our own about our own bias um, in the recruitment process. We learned about all the bias that we've had for decades, and it's shining a light on it now. It's like it's holding up a, a mirror to you know the problems that humans have. And we, we, when we try to translate that into technology, um, and and it's and you know what you know what's good about it? You can blame the technology. You can say bad AI and, sh and switch it off. But you can't say bad human. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't work that no, way. No, it's not. Yeah, to your point, it's, it wasn't maliciously designed. Um, it was possibly ignorantly designed. Um, let's put it that way. And I think that's, that's a fair point. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not saying that there are not biased, intentionally biased organizations out there that potentially look to recruit 
you know, in their image. Um, I'm sure that that probably still continues to this day, much to their own detriment, because they're not getting the right thinking into the organization, frankly, to help them think of course. Uh, in, in, in 21st century ways. So yeah. look, bad, bad on them. Um, and, and hopefully they'll be weeded out by uh, Darwinian law. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, yeah, it's fascinating. And I also see, you know, interesting swings in the other direction as well. Now I'm seeing all sorts of recruitment processes which are blind um, and don't let you know much about that candidate before basically them applying to the job and then you basically getting answers or assessments back from them to then hopefully hook you as a recruiter that this individual is the right individual from a skill set perspective go ahead and continue the interview process. And then, and that's when you kind of discover, you know, who this person's all about, where they come from, what their, you know, whatever it is, their, their, their various uh, demographic components and things of that nature. And by then, hopefully none of that stuff matters because you basically found somebody that really fits the bill um, and is gonna do you proud. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I'm not, I'm not entirely certain how effective those things are either, but you look, bias is there. You know, we're humans. We've been taught to behave a certain way, consciously or subconsciously, um, based on the reactions, you know, we're going to have in our environments to various people, uh, various skin colors, various religions and, and genders and all sorts of things, height, uh, you name it. Um, we're going to have bias. Um, and so to the extent the, the computers can help us think through and beyond and, and, and get us to better uh, faster, um, I think is, is uh, the degree to which I, th I think these things can really be called proper artificial intelligence. He's uh like that was always destined to fail that project you know if 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 we want to do things that we used to do in the past and think we're going to have a, a you know a good uh, outcome now you know that's 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 an unrealistic expectation uh, because the, even the things that we're doing now in a few years time perhaps will be deemed uh, you know irresponsible or wrong or unethical or whatever the case is so so i think the definition of what good looks like needs to be reviewed continuously yeah. Um, uh, and by, you know, occupational psychologists or, or whoever, you know, subject matter experts in that field. Um, so it's it's quite complex. It's quite a complex topic to tackle. And, and to your point, I mean, it's so funny. We've become so used to to various cliches that have kind of worked their way into our, our kind of nomenclature, right? I mean, this notion of what good looks like. I mean, how often have we been using that, right? And I still use it today. And And, you know, what we should be thinking about is what does better look like? You know what I mean? And that's the kind of way yep. we need to be thinking about it is I don't want just want an algorithm to your point that tells me what I've already got um, and then goes and gets more of that. Um, I want an algorithm that says, here's what you got, but here's what's wrong with that. And here's what can be better. Um, have you thought about it this way or that way? And that would become, again, pred predictive analytics um, on through to what they call prescriptive analytics, which is here's the stuff I've looked at and here's what the outcomes are. But what you're describing is an outcome that's way over here. So I'm going to do a gap analysis, and I'm going to tell you if you behave this way, this way, this way, and this way in, in, in those patterns, you ultimately will basically get um, a much better result uh, and get much closer to your gap. In the, in the past, and I've worked in technology for about 20 years or so, <laughs> Um, yep. uh, you've, you've, uh, probably a, a couple more years, uh, in that space, but, uh, you know, in the past, uh, you rarely had to consider the ethical, uh, impact of investing in technology. Uh, that was never a consideration. Yeah. But now you do, uh, now you do. And, and, and especially like in, in HR, I think it's, it's a, it's an opportunity for HR professionals, um, sure. to be, 
you know, the guardians and models of ethical and responsible workplace. So, you know, to step up and say, we want to, we need to invest in, you know, our data culture. Um, we want to uphold the, you know, uh, uh, the, the ethical values of the organization. So perhaps there's new roles to be created in that space. What do you think? Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, we need to think about the efficacy and safety uh, elements, uh, pulling that out from uh, the recent vaccine uh, you know, kind of uh, requirements in, in these phase three trials. But I think it's a good analogy. Um, we have to think about the efficacy, safety, and, um, uh, and capability of these software elements coming together um, is it getting us any closer to better? Um, is it helping kind of weed out um, our own, you know, kind of conscious or subconscious bias? Um, is it helping us become a diverse organization that is bringing in new ways of thinking, um, new ways of doing? Um, are we opening ourselves uh, to disaster by hiring in our own image and narrowing the focus of the people that are going to get us further? Or are we actually opening ourselves up to the future by constantly involving new, fresh, um, you know, kind of curious um, and capable minds that are going to help us rethink everything as, as problems and challenges are always going to keep popping up. So look, yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to have to double check the algorithms and the data going into them. I think we're going to have to, before that, even have to clean up the data and think about the data we do gather um, and make sure we are gathering the right data and that that data is being scrubbed um, in the right way. So it really starts to teach the algorithm to do some pretty fancy, wonderful things and bring that promise to reality. Um, and then sort of the integration elements in terms of how do, these, how do these different systems need to come together to create a seamless and frictionless you know, experience for everybody who uses them. Um, and then how does it ultimately going to be elevating our game so that we as humans with these wonderful giant supercomputers in our heads um, can actually start to use those things um, in ways that, uh, that we haven't been able to in business up until now uh, because we've been in the weeds with too much manual process um, and having to do all this thinking on our own. So we've, we've covered off um, uh, the challenges that we're facing, uh, some of the opportunities that are there. Now let's, start, let's take a viewpoint on t- into the future. Right, and have a look at a Harvard Business Review article about the 21 jobs of the future. Um, I've got a couple of those here. Um, let, let's, let's go through them. I'd be interested to see which of these roles might emerge in your opinion and, and perhaps what other ones they've, they've missed off. Right? But we're, only, we're not going to do all 21. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're just going to take, take five or six. Um, so let's, let's go through them. So chatbot and human facilitator. Mm, yeah, <laughs> That's a lot uh, more complicated than, um, uh, than meets the eye. Um, so if you think about what goes into uh, the creation of a really useful and powerful chatbot, you can either basically go super basic and just have that chatbot pop up when you just want a couple of really quick manual questions that are required from everybody um, to be answered. That's great. Um, but in truth, the real value of chatbots is for them to actually feel um, a bit more um, artificially intelligent. We actually want to kind of have that human experience of that chatbot getting smarter about the answer I just gave you and actually coming back with something that's much more relevant, much more powerful, and much more, um, uh, I guess, kind of leaping towards what it is I need the chatbot to do as opposed to being rote and being repetitive and taking me through a very painful process 
of asking me things that I've already given answers to uh, or, or making me feel like a bit of a stooge, uh, like, a, like a three-year-old, you know, kind of playing an online computer game. Um, I think that it's going to take somebody who really understands human psychological interface, uh, who understands also workflows um, and also systemic uh, flow of information. Um, it's, it's a complicated job. Um, you have to understand how the process is meant to work, the information you want to get from this individual in a very compressed time frame, in a very unique experience um, that is truly differentiating. And that takes a lot of thinking. And get the right answer to them. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so as you'll have to uh, you know, wrangle in your subject matter experts from different parts of the business, et cetera. Uh, yeah, so it's it's that's that's a, an almost a full time job. That's easily a full time job. Yeah, possibly, yeah. possibly too. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. yeah team. Um, okay, the next one is a HR data detective. Yeah, well, it depends on what it is you're looking to do, but it's really interesting. Some of the analytics tools, uh, the people analytics tools that are coming online. Um, recently, I had a conversation with um, uh, a group called Panelit. Uh, and uh, they were rather interesting. They're based out of Singapore, interestingly, and, and uh, a guy by the name of Dan West is one of the co-founders, former uh, Apple HR executive, and uh, uh, worked in Uber as well, I think. Um, and he had some really fascinating notions about how is it we know our people are being productive? Um, how do we know which people are being particularly productive? How do we know who is, is considered amazing without us walking into that environment and artificially trying to extract that information and in so doing, potentially disrupting how it is they behave in such a way that we can no longer gather raw data to make sense of why they are being particularly uh, successful versus other people. And so they basically created a tool uh, that goes and watches, um, again, in a very integrated, very seamless and very quiet manner watches all of the communication platforms um, and all of your BI tools. So as an example, your Salesforce, um, you wanna know why your top 10% of your Salesforce is absolutely crushing it quarter on quarter religiously um, and seemingly making it look easy. And then suddenly 90% is really struggling frankly, to come anywhere close to, to their behavior. And when you kind of take a look at what they're doing and all the different factors, you're seeing, for instance, that A, their, their frequency of communication is much higher. The quality of their communication is much more engaging. Um, the responsiveness in terms of the answers they get back and the speed with which they then respond back um, in a way that makes it feel very personalized um, is much more effective. Um, there's a million different kind of things you can extract in terms of those behaviors. And you start to think, wow, that's really cool. And you don't even need to know their names, right? This is not spying on people. This is actually understanding who is incredibly powerful in what they do. The other thing it tells you is who in the organization, regardless of hierarchy and org charts and all these other sorts of things that we typically kind of use and get stuck uh, in some sort of a mindset in HR, that this is the way information flows and the way decisions are made and the way communication uh, takes place. It's not, it never is. Um, there are always these informal networks, um, especially with big multinational organizations, whereby people at all levels um, across the organization, regardless of position, can actually be seen to be a trusted advisor, can seem to be um, you know, a core of expertise. Um, and it could be the office manager in Singapore who's been with the company for 17 years, but has worked in 15 different office locations in that time. She knows everybody. 
She knows where all the bodies are buried. She knows how to get information out of the system. Uh, you know what I mean? And everybody goes to her over and over again across the company, regardless of country or position or whatever. And they keep saying, you know, please, can you do me a favor? Just one quick favor, let me know. And you start to see that there are hubs and spokes of activity all over the organization. And you can re really create this fascinating, op, you know, uh, what they call organizational network analysis um, that really kind of tells you how people truly operate. So that's the kind of stuff um, I think is really going to be next level. That's the stuff that's really going to start to help us understand how our organization is truly glued together. And it's glued together by people who are special, who are, who are trusted, and who are seen as experts and can help get things done. So yeah, that's an example. Um, what about algorithm bias auditor? I, I like this one. I like the sound of this. Somebody goes around yeah. checking for bias, in, you know, in the algorithms. Well, it's what we talked about with the Amazon thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's this whole notion of, look, what did we just teach this machine to do? And then somebody actually running a test, you know, a, a randomized test, basically, um, uh, however it is you want to experiment with it and piloting it before you actually go to market with it to make sure that you've actually taught that machine what it is you really, um, what it really needs to know in order to start to return the results that are truly going to be exponentially accelerating for you. Um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of work in that. And unfortunately, yeah. I think we're always ever going to need something like that. The algorithms can be very secretive unfortunately. Um, and there's a lot of proprietary um, IP around them that companies don't like sharing. Um, and so we're going to have to be careful um, when we buy those things that we understand what they're doing and why they are doing it so that we can actually make sure that we feed data into those things appropriately and the right data uh, to get the results we're looking for. So this is this is probably a job, a full-time job in the future. But for now, you know, somebody already working in that space would just need to pick this up, yeah, yep. upscale an AI, and you know how be able to identify where a bias has been introduced into a system. That's right. All right. Um, what about you know the human bias? Uh, so human bias officer. Um, I've, I've heard of a few or large organizations that are investing in this now. Yeah, look, um, I, you know, I think, it's, think it goes along with the notion of diversity and inclusion, um, which in and of itself is a bit of a shame that we even have to call that position out. Um, but hey, you know, we're humans. We're obviously fallible. Um, and we have to understand that, you know, this is based on a hundred thousand years worth of painfully slow evolution um, that has taught us um, that survivalistic um, Learning is what's going to get you by. Um, and that's basically what makes us up at our core. Uh, we've been taught, rather, um, that fear um, teaches you how to stay alive. Um, fight or flight responses um, basically keep you alive. Um, you know, checking out what the differences are between people in my tribe versus people in another tribe uh, who may have ill intent in terms of taking our food um, or behaving in a way that's detrimental to my tribe. You know, we've been taught those biases too. Um, and those things are deeply ingrained and you're absolutely right. They will be there for a long old time. Sadly, there's not a pill we can take or genetic, you know, kind of therapy, unfortunately, we can inject um, that will fix that. Um, but importantly, if you become self-aware um, and self-conscious of the fact that, look, I have these things, they are here. Um, they are basically part of my, my readout. Every time I engage with somebody, uh, who I've not met before. And I have to be consciously aware of those things and basically to unpick those things and throw them out as I go. And this individual 
this job that you're talking about, can basically help us understand how do we ask the right kinds of questions and, and basically behave in the right kind of dispassionate manner across all different populations of individual, across all different demographics, and really get to the heart of whether or not this individual is going to ultimately help us on our mission and our vision um, to kind of get to where we gotta go. And I don't care what they look like, where they come from, how old they are, uh, what their genders are, nothing. I don't care about any of that stuff. What I care about is, do you have the right stuff? And the right stuff is defined by... Uh, yeah. All right, I think last one then, um, human machine teaming manager. How important <laughs> will that be? Well, you know, they already exist. Um, and they exist in manufacturing environments, primarily where people are interacting with robots. Uh, it's going to get much weirder going forward, as you can imagine. So dealing with a mechanical robot to kind of complete a complicated uh, you know, manufacturing task is one thing. Um, and, to, and teaching people how to kind of not fear the, the bot, uh, but kind of engage with it is, is kind of the direction going forward. It, and look, we're machine-human learning interfaces is something we have to get used to. So we can have these kinds of, so people can have this level of understanding about what machines are capable of doing and what the differences are in terms of what they basically utilize to get the information they then share with us. And then what we need to do with that information um, to basically pass it along and assimilate a higher strategic um, level of thinking. I think it's going to be important um, that we have that level of um, consciousness and we have some level of instruction about how it is we deal with you know, the, the AI machinery that we're going to be encountering and working with moving forward. And, and of course, it's augmenting us. You know, it's not replacing... Um... Uh, you know, so how to best you how to best work in harmony together? Yeah. So how can I kind of superpower myself in this role to you know hire the best people or train uh, you know or find the 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 best talent within the organization or you know and just to kind of have an uh, um, uh, for want of a better words you know just more equal opportunity for for everyone yeah to 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 be the best version of themselves. So. So yeah, you know this. You know this has been really interesting because you can see, you know, a lot of people seem to worry about, oh, is AI going to take over my job? But new roles that have been created as a result of AI. Um, so you know, there, there's a lot more opportunity being created out there that perhaps we're not all aware of. And we're we've only just shone a spotlight on one industry, which is HR right now. So it would be interesting to to look at at, at the other industries out there. Um, closing question for you. Um, what we like to do on the show, uh, and it's a recurring theme, is we ask our experts, that's, that's you, um, to uh, you know, provide us with a question that we need to be asking, right? So all the professions that are, are tuning in um, uh, to, to our podcast, so we want to arm them with the right questions uh, about AI, right? So the question for you is, what should we be asking of ourselves to help us stay relevant and valuable in a world of constant change? Well, I guess the... the... It goes back to some basics, to be honest with you. And I think it's really important never ever to forget these things um, in that um, what value, you know, is it that I am bringing, you know, to the table basically to help to help humanity basically get through this change? I don't mean to kind of make it sound so Pollyannic as if I'm some kind of Mother Teresa type character. But the, the question I always ask myself is, what is my sense of purpose? You know, what, what is it I'm put, put on earth, you know, to do here in this moment, in this time? At this particular moment, what am I capable of providing in terms of service and support 
um, to the situation that's happening. So, um, and, and what information can I bring to that equation? What tools can I use basically to help empower uh, you know, my mission or vision around this whole thing? Um, and I think that's, I think the way we need to think about it in organizations as well. Look, ensure that we are there present and in the, you know, as a first responder, in the guts of that organization to figure out where we can have a positive impact. And I think we forget that stuff. Um, I think we get stuck in our silos and we, we basically kind of do the same thing we always ever do, expecting a different result, and it never comes. Um, and it's uh, and it's not going to move us forward. And so that's that's, I think, potentially where... You know what this pandemic has done for us, but also what the sort of future of work is all about is how can I rethink my environment and get really creative, get way out of the box as if like there was ever a box and start to rethink anew um, the essence of, of what this organization ought to be. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's all. I, I think that would be my response to that. So to, you know, kind of be, be aware of the constant changing nature of things and to, to upscale. Yeah, to start, you know, doing doing new things, you know, adding more strings to your bow, essentially, yeah. This continuous learning thing, um, it's a bit of a joke that, frankly, we even have to call it out as like sort of a thing that we should probably do is continuously learn. <laughs> the problem is, is that we're now kind of in a pro we're we're in this Darwinian state of, you know, the most highly adaptive to survive, um, you know, in most circumstances. And we keep forgetting that, right? And the bottom line is, is that, look, you know, you're... Uh, you know, secondary school to high school activity through to college, university, whatever it is you ended up doing, that only ever got you so far. That hopefully gave you the, the rudimentary foundations to understand and experiment with, with how you learn. Okay, that's all. Uh, arguably, 90% of the content that they taught you is probably useless by now, um, as I'm finding out with biology, chemistry, and physics uh, myself. Um, all of it's being rethought. Um, and, re and reproven in a very different direction. Um, so the point is, is that, yeah, you have constantly got to be absorbing new information all the time. Um, you have never, you can never ever get lazy about your own development and your own growth. Um, but again, you also learn from reaching out, as I said before, um, and really being of service to others and, and well outside of your remit. You know, don't, don't let your remit dictate what you think you're meant to be doing all day. Reach out beyond that stuff. Um, because that's what that's what organizations and people need. It was so interesting to hear what Jeff has got to say about work and AI. And it really got me thinking, right, because our world of work is changing and AI is impacting this change. So, so Kevin, from your experience of working in HR, how do you see this moving forward? Well, according to the, the World Economic Forum, the half-life of skills is shrinking. So in five years from now, they say that 35% of skills seen as essential today will change, which is similar to what our previous two guests were just talking about, you know, having different skills being important, uh, new roles being created. Um, McKinsey uh, had a study and they, they say that 375 million people will change roles and update their skills by 2030 it's quite a bit into the future but that's a huge amount of disruption um gartner have similar uh, um, reports i won't quote all of them pwc they'll be in the show notes um but you know one thing i, I was asking myself is like that's a huge amount of disruption uh, has it ever happened before has there ever been this mass fear about uh, uh losing jobs because of because of technology and and it has happened many many times 
So uh, if you think back to, you know, the, the second industrial revolution, uh, and more specifically the the um, adoption of the the car, all right, by, by you know, the families buying cars, it only really became possible when when Henry Ford, um, you know, utilized the the production line. So families could then afford a car. Before then, it was just a rich person's plaything, and they were they were fad essentially, right? And they were terribly unreliable and very, very costly. But um, they got to a time where, 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 where it was affordable. So a lot of people were worried, well, hey, what's going to happen to all of the people who work in the horse industry? Yeah, what's going to happen to them? And there's so many of them. You've got farriers and blacksmiths and vets, carriage makers, agriculture. You know, whole countries were focused on the agriculture of feed for, um, for horses. Uh, groomers, you know, there's these huge, huge industries uh, all linked to, to the horse. And if they're all being replaced by a car, well, people were thinking there's going to be jobs that's going to, that's going to be lost. Of course, of course there will. And uh, a study by McKinsey, uh, again, from 1910 to 1950, 626,000 jobs were destroyed in the US because of the adoption of the car, right? I thought that was quite interesting. So that, you know, people were, they were probably right to, to be worried about it. But um, in the same period of time, seven and a half million jobs were created in the US as a result of the car. Because you think about it, um, you know, what are the industries that would have boomed? Well, and they could have never predicted this, right? Well, we're, we're just kind of have, trying to have a look now. Is this going to happen now? And we're starting to see new roles being created. But back then, in order to afford a car, um, you'd have to take out a loan. And it's the same case today for many people, right? So what happens? Consumer credit now is a booming industry, right? Um, advertising, right? So beforehand, you could have lots of, of, of detail on a, on a billboard. But once the cars were going 30 miles an hour, uh, you had to have like logos that caught the attention. So Madison Avenue kicked off, right? And then that was booming. And then, of course, all of the manufacturing plants to all of the little components right so of course yes you were a carriage builder before but now you're building cars you know so there, there are so many different and of course look now you've got mass transportation of goods uh um you know and and for travel and transport and there's mining of course right we need all the raw materials so yeah and that helped with the growth of our economies and of and course all of, that. of course we, we never could have thought it. it was just one thing replacing another but what, the reason why it wasn't because it was just affordable back then, it was because cities were getting overcrowded with horses and and it was it was not very clean, right? And peep and the car represented progress, and that's why it became adopted. I want to be able to get across the street without stepping in something you know undesirable. Um, that was the promise of it. So I think we're seeing that now, and that AI is is creating these new new roles that we just talked about with with Jeff. But it'll be interesting to, to have a look at some of the other industries to see how it's affecting those. What do you think? Yeah, I you know, uh, that is just a fantastic way to to use a, a, an historical context to explain uh, what we're seeing. And the ask of us is is there and I think is high because, you know, learning a new skill isn't easy or thinking of how you can adapt your expertise for a new role. But it is a challenge we have to take on as things evolve. You know, AI isn't going anywhere. 
it's not where we th- want it to be or where we think it should be at the moment. But what is very clear is that it is going to continue to grow and be around us and impact our jobs. So I guess what we have control over is how we react to that. So take on the challenge of understanding how AI impacts your job, your role. Ask the questions. I mean, from our two guests, they have laid it clear in terms of the opportunities, but also areas to question um, and, and face it boldly and not fear, you know, AI, you know, taking over and, and all the robots taking over. Yeah, and and I think this is something we we'll have to ask many of our guests because you know we're not we're not economists at all, so we we can only really just have a viewpoint on on what's happening now. We can't tell what's going to happen in the future. Is it is it going to be the same as when the you know the horse was replaced? We we don't know that because it's different types of of jobs. But we are going to be asking people. Um. So yeah, it'll be interesting to find out more about it. So uh, with this episode, Deepak and Jeff have really gone into the topic of, um, you know, AI and jobs. And it's a good opportunity to understand what's happening in the landscape. But Kevin, um, what questions can we take away from, from their conversation? Well, Deepak had a great one there, which was, you know, is my job easily describable? Uh, am I easily describable? Yeah. Um, so and that that kind of leads on to, you know, what is the unique skill set that, that I have that makes me valuable? So if, if you want to be valuable, you need to be, uh, you know, difficult to replicate. Okay. So unique. That's what, that's what value is attached to. That's the way it is right now. Um, so, so what does that mean to us? Have a look at our skills. What skills do we have? Okay. And the government has got a great website now. It's nationalcareers.service.gov.uk. We'll put it in the show. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, And it's got a questionnaire there. It's an assessment. Now, it's a bit hit and miss, I have to say. It's kind of like, in the future, this this will be probably a lot better. But right now, it's kind of like you're your guidance counselor. Yeah. But but you can go into even more detail and and really get into the granular uh, level detail of what skills do I have and what proficiency level do I I have? Because businesses and the government, especially the government, are now measuring skills. While I'm talking about our organizations, um, you know, for our listeners, here's a couple of questions that I, I would be asking. Because we need to, it's not just about the individual, what do I need to do? What's my organization doing? Uh, are these new AI roles, the new AI roles that are being created? What's your organization doing to enable people to transition into those roles? Um, and I think the second question I would ask of, of any org is, um, if you're using AI recruitment tools, is it actually reducing unconscious bias? Have you measured that? You know, what's the results like now compared to before? Um, you know, have you improved gender diversity in the hiring process or or whatever metric that you want to use yes yes indeed what else came out of the show uh one question that uh stuck out in my mind is around thinking what ai will enable you to do okay so thinking about how bringing ai into your work what that will allow you to achieve you know taking away the mundane tasks again freeing you up as a human to do the higher level thinking and bringing yourself into the job 
So thinking about that um, is one question that stuck out to me. Yeah, yeah, that I mean, it was it was it was great. I mean, why am I am I inviting this AA? Why you know where are we using it? What's the value? What's the value case for 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 using this? Yeah, are we are we bringing the AI in so that we can say we've got AI and is it real AI? Are we utilizing it in that regard in our work? So yes, I agree. It's really about asking that question. <laughs> it probably won't even be called AI. I mean, I've, I'm noticing this more and more now. Like uh, there was a period of time, and it still is to a certain degree, where every business said, "Oh, we've got AI that we, you know, are part of our tool." Especially in HR, there's 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 over a thousand uh, AI HR tools on the market, right? Now, I, I've when you scratch the surface on this, they're they're not all AI. Right, they they just say they are, but also AI will split a room. So I think we're just going to call them tools going forward. Yes, right? tools are easier. But you know, if if our audience, if they listen to our podcast with Robert Elliot Smith, they'll tr- get to understand better what AI is and the difference between simple tools and advanced analytical tools. So check it out if you haven't already. Yeah, that was a that was a great episode, and he gives us the definition for AI for the for the show. So so tune in if you want to understand more about that. He's a he's a great guest. So thanks so much, Kevin, for taking us through that whistle-stop tour of AI in jobs. Uh, it's been a really interesting journey, even though I know we've only just scratched the surface. We really have. Uh, so if you've got any more questions about AI in jobs, or you'd like to suggest a particular area of this topic that we haven't yet covered, uh, tweet us at We and AI Podcast. Uh, and we'll try to investigate them in a future podcast. And if you like today's episode, it would be great if you could rate it or maybe even leave us a review. In the meantime, we hope you join us for our next episode where we will be sitting down for a fireside chat with one of the minds behind Amazon Alexa. It's going to be a good one, so make sure to join us then. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.